Good morning. Man, it's good to see you all here this morning. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. If you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn there, I'll give you a minute and give you a couple announcements while you're getting there. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, if you're here today and you don't have a Bible, we do put black Bibles around the seats, in the seats around you underneath, so feel free to grab one of those, and uh, those are there for you. Um, just a couple of things and by way of update, um, so you can know uh, what's going on behind the scenes and how to pray for our leadership. Uh, on, on one account, um, I think the, 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 the amazing work that God is doing in our church family um, is, is, is obvious and evident that God is moving in a very powerful and mighty way um, on Sunday mornings, but not just Sunday mornings, in the lives of our people um, on Monday through Saturday in remarkable ways through life groups, through student ministry, through kids ministry, through counseling, through all the different avenues that God's Spirit is moving in our people. And so we see that uh, tangibly expressed here on Sunday mornings. We've had two Sunday mornings just this summer, uh, second services where we were out of seats. And so um, we're excited about that work that God is doing. We know that we also have to be preparing behind the scenes uh, for that growth and for what that means for us for the future. And so um, we know very likely staff is already having the conversation that within the next year we'll, we may have to go to a third service just to make room for um, all the folks that God is bringing to our church. And we're excited about that. Not quite sure when or where or what that's going to look like. So be praying for us uh, in that part of the journey. But want to let you know that um, our building and research and development team that has been working now for 19 months behind the scenes, um, doing research on our area, the projected growth, what God is doing in our church. They're the number crunchers that do all that and then let us know what the results are. Um, have been working diligently to, uh, to secure an architect um, for our future building needs. And so I want to give you an update on that. Um, just this last week, they brought a recommendation to the elders um, of a final selection on an architect. The elders affirmed that, and so we have officially hired an architect. And uh, let me let you know what that means. Before any buildings are designed or drawn or, or um, you know, all the sizes and seats, all those questions are answered, we start with what's called a master site plan, which means God has blessed us um, and we are debt-free as a church and we've got approximately 15 acres here. Um, around 11 or so is buildable because of the pond. Um, and so before we take, uh, take one shovel out here and put it in the ground, we want to know how can we best utilize this campus for God's glory to be a beacon of hope in this community. And so the first phase with an architect is just getting a master site plan together. How can we utilize the resources we have, thinking about future buildings, thinking about how to maximize every square foot of this campus for God's glory. And so that's the, that's the process we're about to step into um, we'll be giving you updates along the way, but hope to have that wrapped up by the end of the year so that our all members, all leaders meeting in January, we've got significant updates, maybe even some conceptual drawings for you, and then we'll announce what the next phase will look like. And so a lot of questions about timing and size and all those, I, I don't know. Um, we're, we're trusting God to reveal that to us as, um, as it unfolds. So I want to let you know about that. Also, um, many of you who are, who are members here know um, that uh, Jason Lewis, our worship minister, um, last October came to the elders and said, guys, listen, I think that um, though the ministry here has been fruitful, I can see a time where God would have me step down from leadership. And, and he asked us whether or not it might be then, last October. And so we prayed about it as elders. We um, talked about it for over a month and came back to Jason and said, you know, we can, we can see that. Um, you know, he has a full-time job and very involved in the lives of his, of his boys and baseball and in other areas of life. And um, just said, but we don't think the chapter's closed yet. And so we would ask that you might stay on another year. And so he committed to that last October. 
Um, but October is right around the corner. And so um, behind the scenes, uh, leadership team and elders have been discussing and praying and discussing and praying more about what the next step would look like for us as a church. And so I want to let you know that that process is well underway. Um, we're even beginning to move into the interview um, process, which is, is still fairly lengthy, so don't expect any significant updates you know, in the next week or two. But I would ask that you'd pray for us. Um, pray for um, our leadership team and our elders and uh, any candidates that we might be interviewing, just specifically praying over us that at the end of the day, we would we'd be able to discern uh, the will of the Lord and trust him in that and follow him in that as he continues to bless and, and lead our church. So I wanted to let you know about that. We'll be entering into the interview process um, this next month uh, with a candidate, so pray for us. And uh, so there's the, there's the announcements for you. Um, all right, so here's where we are. If you're visiting with us, just real quick, um, for the majority of the summer, we've been in the book of Hebrews. It's a New Testament book. Um, there's some speculation on who the author was. Was it Apostle Paul? Was it Luke? Or was it Barnabas? Um, the thing about Hebrews is, is, that's unique is that we don't fully know. Um, if you talk to theologians and biblical scholars, a lot of opinions. But we don't know. But here's what we do know. It's incredibly consistent with the Word of God everywhere else. And it is a remarkable commentary explaining to us as Christians how the Old Testament is relevant to our lives today. There's a lot of theology in Hebrews. And, and so from week to week, we've been walking through that. But it's incredibly relevant and applicable to our lives as well. And so we've been in that series this summer. Today is the day we land it. And uh, we've actually got two chapters left, but we're only going to cover the first 11 verses of chapter 12. What happens is in verses uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 12, we really get kind of a, a, a summary or a thesis statement of all of Hebrews, in my opinion. And so then what follows from there in the rest of 12 and 13 is a lot of life application. The author is jumping topics fairly rapidly. I actually heard um, a preacher recently compare the last two chapters of Hebrews to a cell phone call with 3% battery and just needing to get out a lot of information before this thing ends. And so you're going to find a lot of um, life application jumping from topic to topic in the last two chapters. And after today, I, I encourage you to finish Hebrews out um, on your own, praying and reading through the last few verses of, of the book. But what we're going to do today is we're going to land the series and, and bring all this to a climax as we've looked at so far um, the, this overwhelming theme that Jesus is better. So the people uh, who are called the Hebrews, in other words, they're from Hebrew or Jewish descent, okay? So had Christ not come yet, they, these were the Jews who would be worshiping in the temple, but Christ has come as a fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. So these are now the Jewish Christians that are being written to. And we also know that severe persecution has set in. And there's a lot of temptation to abandon the faith because they're being jailed, imprisoned, uh, persecuted, beaten, even killed for the fact that they have said, we follow Jesus as our God. And so that we know that that's going on in the backdrop. So the first words of, verse, of chapter 12 begin here. Therefore. Okay, and it's not just... Um, a, a, a cliche that preachers use. When you see a therefore, you really need to ask, what is it therefore? It's therefore a reason. So what I believe is happening with this therefore is the author is saying, everything I've said from chapters 1 through 11, therefore. It's a pretty big therefore. So we started off this series looking at how Jesus is better. First of all, he's better than anything found in heaven or on earth. Uh, then we saw how Jesus is more superior than the angels. He's better than any angelic being. He shouldn't be compared with the angels. He should be as seen as higher than the angels, the, the very Son of God. We saw how Jesus is better than any priest that we find here on earth. 
whether that's a priest in the temple or a spiritual leader in the church, like Jesus is better. Thank God Jesus is better, right? Uh, we saw how Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant or a better promise. So the Old Testament is, is full of promises from God. Jesus fulfills them all, then makes a better promise. What is that? Well, the promises of the Old Testament were what? Obey and you'll be blessed. That's a decent promise, right? I give that to my kids all the time. Do, do what I say and you'll be rewarded. That's a fair promise, right? But what Jesus has brought is a better promise. What is the promise Jesus makes? Believe and you'll be blessed. It is by faith that you will be saved. It is those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God who will truly find salvation, forgiveness of sins, and this beautiful adoption into the family of God. And so not only that, but Jesus is a better sacrifice, over and over again in the Old Testament, the priests have to go in year after year after year, sacrificing animals on behalf of the sins of the people. It never works. It never takes away the sins of the people. But Jesus has come once and for all, right? Better, a better sacrifice on our behalf. So with that in mind, last week we were in Hebrews 11 looking at what faith looks like when we bend it out in our real lives. So it's one thing to say, Right? Conceptually, I have faith in God. It's another thing altogether on Monday morning when my faith is te tested to put my faith into practice. And so last week we saw that true faith, saving faith, has a substance to it. It, it plays out in everyday life. It's not just a t-shirt we wear or something we say with our lips, but it, it's something that we live out. Now, not perfection, but progress. We talked about that, right? Not moral perfection, or this idea that I'm always obedient, but there's a striving in my life, a progression, a growth that you see. And we talked about, it's kind of like watching a tree grow, right? It's, it's a slow thing to watch a tree grow, but year after year, you begin to see what? Growth and eventually producing of fruit. And so, so is our faith when we live it out and we bend it out practically. And so now, what we begin with in verse 1 is, therefore, it's a big therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we start with that first phrase, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Well, it's coming right out of 11. You read 11, you know exactly what he's talking about, right? Starting with the um, the Old Testament patriarchs and matriarchs, the men and women of faith, they're just these beautiful examples and summaries of the whole Old Testament in Hebrews 11, showing us what faith looks like when you live it out. It, it, it involves trust and hope and, and a sense of, of obedience to God. And so we saw that last week. So we know from that first verse, the author has this idea of an endurance race in mind, right? A long-distance endurance race. So the imagery I get when I read that, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, is this idea of the last leg, the last straightaway, if you will, of a long-distance race, and all along the sidelines are those men and women who've gone before you who are cheering you on. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, this, this reminds me of um, my um, very short-lived track career. Uh, I, you know, in, in the school I grew up in, everybody tried out for athletics and, uh, until you figured out what your niche was, and then you kind of shifted there. So I, I did the whole thing, football in the fall, basketball. It's my seventh grade year. Uh, spring was then track for me, and I was, I was clumsy and awkward. I had, my feet were almost as tall as I was. You know, I just didn't really find my niche anywhere, um, and, 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 and track was, was boring, 
right? Just, I mean, like, nobody's chasing me. Why am I running? Like, and, right? And there's, I'm not trying to catch anybody. So, like, just, we're just running in circles. So the whole practice, all that was very boring and just daunting for me. But I'll never forget one specific practice right before I retired, about two weeks in. I was, I was running the, uh, the 400, which is one lap, okay? Not, not a significant long-distance race, but I'll never forget um, the difference it made having a crowd of witnesses there cheering you on. I'll never forget making the turn from, uh, from going from 600 to 800, last 200 meters. For whatever reason, some friends of mine who were um, out on the practice field, I think they were shot-putting or doing whatever, and they were watching us turn that last corner, they started cheering for me. And boy, what a difference did that make. Like, I went into this thinking, I'm going to lose. That's the way it was in football. We had three different teams, right? The, red, the blue team, the white team, and then the blue-white team, which was like the third. St- and then we had like five different strings on each team. I was like fifth string, third team. I got no play time. So that's what I expected track to be like. So I'm just, you know, I'm just making it through practice. I'll never forget coming. I was in dead last, turning the corner uh, of the last 200 of that 400. And, uh, and, and my friend started cheering me on. Just, you can do it. Come on, Jason. I'll never forget how that inspired me and fueled me. And I won that 400. I came from last and won it. Just, boo, smoked them. The coach was like, where did that come from? I don't know. And then I, I quit track the next week and started playing tennis. So um, it was a short-lived career, but I can testify to, right, to, the, to the power that comes whenever you've got folks on the sideline cheering you on. And that's the imagery we get as we, we start this last leg of Hebrews, the author says, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, these men and women who've gone before us, they're, they're, they're on, the, on the sidelines cheering you on. Don't quit. Don't stop. You can do it. So since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. I love this wording. It was a little bit difficult to wrestle through what do you actually mean here but first is mentioned before sin is mentioned is weight okay and it's just a generic form of weight it's this idea that you're running a race with unnecessary weight baggage like you get your backpack on and so the author is saying hey you need to you need to shed that weight now before he gets to sin then he's implying that there could be things in our lives that weigh us down bog us down hold us back that may not even be necessarily sin Maybe even good things in our life could be distracting us or inhibiting us from running the race. I, I need to hear that. I, I tend to get to a place in my life where I can say, if I can say, well, there's no sin here, then I could just do whatever I want. But sometimes God challenges me on that. Okay, yeah, it's not a, a moral issue, but it is, it is an issue of obedience and following me. What do we, and just give you some examples, you know, maybe, maybe for you, just could be a career path. Not a bad thing. Work hard. Want to be respected by your peers. Want to make it to the top. Want to lead. Those are great ambitions. Could be, you know, if, if, if God were calling you somewhere else, that could be a weight, an unnecessary weight, right, holding you back. Um, I see it a lot of times in, um, in high school students um, in two ways. Um, one, trying to figure out who they are, just pursuing identity. That's a good thing, right, wanting to know who you are. Boy, I didn't have a clue who I was in high school. I barely even have a clue now, but I didn't have a clue. And, right? And so, but then what happens is pursuing that identity in the wrong things, looking for approval in the wrong places. And, 
And just the, the concept of wanting to be secure in your identity, that's a good thing. But that can quickly become weight, unnecessary baggage, thing that you're throwing energy at and, and resources at and time at. I was thinking about this morning. Um, you know, so, like, if we took, if we took the, the room here today, the folks here present today, um, and, and calculated how much time um, collectively we spent getting ready for this morning, like how many hours collectively. Now, I'm so thankful you showered. Don't get me wrong. And... Like, I'm thankful that you cleaned up. But if we just took that block of time, hours, and set it aside and said, whatever it was, 43 hours, I wonder then if we also pulled the same group of folks and we said, how much time did you spend with the Lord this week? And we accumulated all your time, and then we added it to everybody else's time. I, I wonder sometimes, at least in my own life, I feel like I, I might spend more time getting ready for my day aesthetically right, than I actually do getting ready for my day spiritually. See how easily good things are Right? Good things, practical things, things that aren't necessarily moral or good or evil can, right? can take precedence over spiritual things. And so the first thing he says is we need to be prepared to lay aside those things when God shows them to us, whatever they are. Now, if you're pursuing you know, a career path and a promotion, don't assume that I said that that's evil. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying you need to step back and be willing that when God comes to you and says, listen, this is something you're trying to do on your own strength. If this is an area you're throwing resources at that is not part of my will for your life, even if it's not sin, that you'd be willing to say, you know what? I'm willing to lay that aside for the sake of running the race. And then he gets to sin. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Man, what imagery there. Sin clings closely. It is not a thing easily laid down, is it? Reminds me of walking through um, the woods in North Texas in August and all the burrs and things that try to stick to you, just attach to you. And I've got two boys, and they'll go running through a patch of grass and come out, and they're just covered with stuff, right? And you're like, oh, my gosh, slow down. Let me pick this stuff off you. It takes a while to pull. And like you've, you've got pets, dogs, you have to pull the stickers out. This clings so closely. That's the imagery we get. Sin is described that way, that it cleans that closely. It's not a thing easily laid down. It's not as easy as just walking down front at the end of the church service and saying, you know what, I'm just not going to sin in this area anymore. Okay, I'm good. And walking away. There's a struggle to be had. And so some of your translations, NIV, NASB, um, this idea of laying aside, some translations say throw off. That might be the translation you're in. I think that might even be a better way to visualize this. Like there needs to, there's effort sometimes in throwing off the weights and throwing off this, this sin that so easily entangles us. I thought it was interesting. This is just a side note. Um, a little bit further ahead in chapter 12 and then 13, he lists some specific sins that these folks were struggling with that they needed to be ready to throw off. Um, just, just glance down at verse 15 in chapter 12. Um, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. And then in chapter 13, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And just some examples there, bitterness, sexual immorality, and the love of money. For these folks um, were the, these primary things that the author thought worthy of time to write down. Okay, he's in a hurry here, but he went ahead and mentioned these things. I think that's, right, there's nothing new under the sun. 
right? The 21st century uh, people here on earth are not the first people to struggle with these things, roots of bitterness. That's when we get somebody hurts us or, or, um, or something happens in our life. We'll talk about this a little bit more directly in a minute, and we, and we automatically blame God. But when, we, when we've been hurt, and then we shift and we direct blame, and then we allow that blame or that anger or that frustration to take root in our hearts and produce bitterness, and then we become bitter people. Then we begin to become cynical people. We expect everybody to do that same thing to us. That's nothing new, is it? I, I struggle with that in my weekly marriage. Not allowing roots of bitterness to take root in my heart when my wife frustrates me. Love of money? Yeah. I mean, these were poor folks. These were third world, living on dirt streets, some of them didn't have shoes kind of folks. And they still struggle with love of money. And what was his encouragement? Find contentment in the Lord. Make the declaration, the Lord is my helper, the banner over your life. I'm saying money is evil. Right? Just don't let the love for it take root in your hearts. It'll, it'll misguide you every time. And then, of course, sexual immorality. Nothing new under the sun. And so the author says, in order to run the race that, that, that God has set before you, you've got to be willing to lay aside the weights, even the weights of things that could potentially seem like good things. You need to be prepared to throw off the sin and get ready because that sin's going to try to reattach to you. You must be willing to throw those things off and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, we're going to talk in a minute about how to do that, but this idea of endurance brings up a significant theme in the book of Hebrews. Um, The word suffering in the book of Hebrews is mentioned eight times. The concept of falling uh, falling away from Jesus is mentioned three times. Endure or endurance is mentioned nine times. I'll give you an example. Just, we were just reading this in chapter 10, uh, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And then he describes this hard struggle they were facing. Listen to this description. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. I know that imprisonment was part of what they were experiencing. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promise. This idea of endurance is a rich theme in Hebrews. Uh, the, the idea of holding fast to Jesus. We've talked about this a little bit last week. Five times as mentioned in the book of Hebrews. I'll give you some examples. You don't have to turn there. Hebrews 3, 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Hebrews 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 6.18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Hebrews 10.23, just read, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful and then later on in Hebrews 13, 23, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, whom I shall see if you, if he, excuse me, 
whom I shall see you if he comes soon. It took me a minute to read that. Here's what he's saying. Hey, even Timothy, he just names one of them, has been in prison for the sake of his faith. Endure hardships, suffering, hold fast to the hope that is set before you. Let me just give you an example. Timothy, he's somebody you know really well. You know how much he loves Jesus. You know how much he's laid down in his own life to follow Jesus, and you know what it cost him. It put him in prison. Now, he's, he's out. Hope to see him again soon, but realize that this is the struggle you are facing. So when he says endure the race, he's not just talking about a, a happy track and field day. He's saying, listen, you, it's, this is more like a mud run. There are obstacles in the way. There are forces that are going to come against you. There are things that are going to be trying to entangle you and ensnare you and drag you off course. That's the race, right? That's the the stretch with the cloud of witnesses along the sideline saying you can do it. So that every time you hit another obstacle, you think there's no way I'm going to be able to overcome this one. You stop and you catch your breath. You look back and go, wow, Jesus has brought me this far. Maybe I should keep going. Maybe he can get me through this one. And then you hear on the sidelines the crowd of witnesses saying, you can do this. Keep going. And so then you put one foot in front of the other, and you continue walking in faith. That's the race that's being described here for us. If you're taking notes with us, we have sermon notes in the seats in front of you. If you want to fill in the blanks, feel free to do that. Since Jesus is better than anything else in heaven and on earth, I must pursue repentance and strive for endurance in my faith. Pursue repentance and strive for endurance in my faith. So while on one hand, everything miraculous that's happening in my life is God doing it. I don't don't get any credit for it. I can't do miraculous work in my life or your life, right? So any work that's happening in me, me being saved, me being called to holiness, me striving to obey God, that's God's spirit in me doing it. On the other hand, God invites us to participate in what he's doing in us. And so there's room for effort, right? There's room to put one foot in front of the other. There's room to strive for. And so in this particular passage, as we think about how do we throw off sin, there's only one way to throw off sin, repentance. Repentance is that moment of humility where you stop and you acknowledge, I can't do this. I can't. I have allowed my life to be entangled in whatever this thing is. It's my fault. I can't blame anybody else, and I can't untangle myself. God, I need you. And so in your effort, you turn from that thing to Christ. That's the, that's the act of repentance. How do we throw off? Here's the thing. If, if you don't know Christ, like you're not going to be able to throw it off because you're going to turn. There's going to be nothing there. So repentance is turning from sin to Christ. But not only that, there's there's room for striving. How many times did he tell them to hold fast? And we talked about last week, as we hold fast, we take hold of the hand of Jesus, what does he do? He takes hold of us. It's like if my four-year-old ran down to the stage and lifted his hand up for me to pick him up, I'm going to grab his hand. If I just let him hang on to me, there's no way he's going to be able to right, come up on the stage. I've got to take hold of him. But there's this call to do what? To strive to hold on to Jesus' hand. I must pursue repentance and strive for endurance in my faith. Now, verse 2 is going to give us some beautiful ideas on how to do this. Chapter two, I'm chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus. So Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder 
and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, what just happened is that same imagery of the race is still being painted, but now we've been told to fix our eyes on something. NIV and NASB say, fix your eyes. ESV says, look to Jesus. I think the fix your eyes is probably a better idea here to actually like turn your eyes um, off of something or other things and fix them on something else. It's the thing we want our kids to do when we're disciplining them and we, like, we get on there like, here, no, I need you to look at me right now. Fix your eyes. Take your eyes off of everything else. Okay, that's what's being expressed here. So the idea of the race, I have this endurance course in front of me. I've got a great cloud of witnesses, witnesses cheering me on. And they've all finished the race too, by the way. So they're not just like grandma cheering me on. Oh, you can do it, sweetie. I mean, these are like, these are, these are folks who've done it. They've already finished the race and come back around. They're watching. They're cheering us on. And at the end, we're told to fix our eyes on something, better yet, someone, by fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's the way we finish the race. We take our eyes off of other things. Good things even, right? Things that may not necessarily be sin, just things that are weighing us down. We take our eyes even off of the obstacles, which is what we're going to learn how to do next, and we fix them on something else, him. He's the author and perfecter, meaning he started this thing in you, and he's going to be the one to finish it. Fix your eyes on him. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. And then we get this um, example, who for the joy that was set before him... Set before is the idea of set before, like on a path. So even Jesus has come and run this race on our behalf. If you think about his life here on earth, he's doing this thing that's being described as an endurance race. And so how did he do it? Well, he did it for what? The joy that was set before him. He, had, he was fixated on something. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You fix your eyes on him. Listen to the voices of those cheering you on, but don't even fixate on them. Don't get fixated on Abraham. Don't get fixated on Rahab or Sarah or all these great examples. You can listen to them, keep them in the peripheral, but you fixate on him because he's the only one who's actually finished the race and finished it well. Fix your eyes on him. Now, I want to just make a side note too. Jesus is the point of heaven. Jesus is the point of eternal life. Jesus is the point of salvation. Jesus is the point of this whole thing. Like if your ambition of going to heaven is just not going to hell, that's the wrong ambition. If your ambition of going to heaven are all the things that you've been told will be there to await you, like a perfectly groomed 18-hole course and you get to, you know, work on your short game with, with, uh, with Noah or whatever, like all those silly things that we make up in our mind about heaven, if that's your ambition... The stuff, whatever it is, even if it's the stuff described in the Bible, if it's anything other than Jesus, your ambition is wrong. We've been told to fix our eyes on him, not just what he can give to us, but him himself. Like when we get there, that's the thing we're going to be most excited about. Reunited with loved ones, um, freedom from, uh, you know, Illness, freedom from suffering, all those things are going to be great things that are part of your experience in eternal life. But the main thing that will cause your heart to well up and sing will be the fact that he's there. Go 
go ahead and fix your eyes on him now. Because when you get there, guess where your eyes are going to be fixated? Him. Fix your eyes on him. Jesus, since Jesus is better than anything else in heaven and on earth, I must fix my eyes on him. Fix my eyes on him. How do I throw off weight? How do I throw off sin? I have to turn and fix my eyes on him. If I fix my eyes on anything else, I'm just going to get roped right back in. I have to fix my eyes on him. Verse 3, even more incredible instruction on how we do this. Verse 3 says, consider him, still talking about who? Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Why is he saying that? Because they're experiencing hostility from people. And so what the author is saying is, I want you to consider Jesus, how he endured hostility, so that you yourselves may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So how do I do this? How do I not grow weary or faint-hearted? How do I not give up? Um, for all the uh, original language buffs and homies out there, um, in the Greek, the original language, this is actually an imperative verb. And for the rest of us who, right, we don't get into all the, the geeky stuff about original languages, it's a command. It is. It's a command. And normally when we think about the commands of God, we think, do this, don't do that, right? This is a beautiful imperative command, and it's consider. So Jesus steps up to the mic and he says, I'm going to tell you how to make it to the end. Consider. What does that mean? It's a really really beautiful word, consider. So it is an imperative command. It means to contemplate, ponder, meditate by weighing or comparing. That's what the word means. We've just been commanded to, to, to meditate on or to compare Jesus to things here on earth by weighing, by weighing or comparing. Now think about it like this. So what do we weigh? Well, here's the first thing we weigh. Who is Jesus? That matters. If he's just a prophet, if he's just an angelic being, right? I haven't come encountered with an angelic being. That's a big deal. But if he's just one of those, if he's just a rabbi, if he's just a teacher, that matters. I'm only going to place so much weight on what he says. So the first thing we have to weigh out is, who is he? This is the question Jesus asked his disciples, right? Who do the people say that I am? What kind of weight are they placing on my identity? Some say what? Moses, Elijah, one of the prophets. And Jesus looks at his his disciples and says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And what do they say? What does Peter say? You're Jesus. You're the son of the most high God. If that is true, we, we better listen to what he says, right? We better take heed. We better place weight on who he is and what he then therefore says and does. That's the first part of that command. Consider Jesus. Not only weighing out who he is, but weighing out what he's done. We just, in verse 2, got, got just a summary. Um, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That's, that's a short summary of a lot that Jesus endured, right? I mean, think about it. Son of God, no obligation other than his own will and character to, to come to earth and put on our skin to experience our pain, to know what it feels like when skin gets torn or cut, to know what a bruise feels like, right? To know what blisters feel like, to know what tears taste like, 
to know what loneliness feels like. All those things that are part of the human experience, we learned in Hebrews, right? We haven't faced anything he hasn't faced. I mean, we weigh out what he's done. I mean, right? Who he is and what he's done. I mean, how could we not take heed? How could we not look at our lives and think, you know what? Our lives would have so much more meaning and purpose if we lived it like he lived it. Weigh it out. But not only that, compare. Compare Jesus. The way I worded this in my notes is compare Jesus to everything in life. And what I mean by that is everything that I hold valuable or dear. Compare Jesus for me is compare Jesus to my wife. Now, she'll be here in the second service, and she'll hear me say that. Yeah. I, I constantly have to compare how much I love my wife to how much I love Jesus. And if I ever begin loving my wife more than I love Jesus, in the end, I'm going to love her less. I love my, my wife better when I love Jesus more. Why? Because in my love for him, I desire to obey him, and I trust what he tells me to do. And guess what he tells me to do? To love her well and better than I would on my own. If I think about what loving my wife well looks like, and I painted a portrait of it, like it would pale in comparison to the description Jesus gives. Here's how, well, here's how he tells me to love my wife. Love her like I love the church by laying my life down for her. Oh, man. Ouch. There's, there's not any, right, more beautiful or tangible way that I can love her but to lay my life down for her. See, when I love Jesus more, I love her better. The same thing is true for my boys. I love my boys. I do. Don't come between me and my boys. Don't hurt one of my boys and let me see it. I'm going to have a hard time controlling my flesh. I'm just going to be honest with you. But here's the thing. When I love Jesus more than I love them, I love them better. Because then I what? I desire to obey what he says. I trust his counsel to me as a dad. And so therefore I love him better because I love him more. And so on and so forth throughout the other areas of my life. Just working my way down the list. Possessions, right? All of us would like to say I don't love my possessions, but we find value in them, don't we? We even express affection sometimes in our possessions. See, if I ever love my possessions more than I love Jesus, I'm going to find my hope in them. And then when they're gone, guess what I have? No hope. But when I love Jesus more than with my possessions, I'm an incredibly generous person, sacrificially generous. I, I look for ways to give stuff away and help people out and loan stuff out. And, right? By loving Jesus more than I love you, I treat you better. And I'm more prone to be generous with you. See, compare Jesus to everything in life. And if anything ever tips the scale in weight or affection, you can, you can be assured your life is being drawn off course. Every time. There's no way you're going to fix your eyes on him unless he alone has captured your affections. Since Jesus is better than anything else in heaven on earth, I must weigh and compare everything in life against who Jesus is and what he has done for me. Everything. My wife's awesome, but she's never willingly gone to the cross on my behalf. Right? I have to weigh it out. And Jesus, the scales must tip towards him every time. All right, verse 4 now. 
now the author is really going to spend a few verses talking about suffering and talking about the struggle that these folks were facing. And we're going to look to see how it's similar to the struggles that we face in our everyday lives. Verse 4. In your struggle against sin, oh man, I wanted to go to suffering first because that makes everything everybody else's fault. So the first part of my struggle and my suffering, I need to acknowledge I've got a part in it. So in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Ouch. I just got Jesus juked there. Right? So that is the response when I go to God and go, I've tried everything and I just can't quit sinning. God responds to me and says, well, look. In your struggle against your sin, you haven't yet struggled to the point of shedding blood. And he's not telling me to go bloody myself up. What he's saying is, like, look, look to Jesus. Like, there is more to be done. There is more effort to be given. You haven't exhausted everything. You have not shed it to the, or resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And then I love where he goes from 5 on through the rest, through verse 11. As he talks about enduring suffering, he says, And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. He said, you've forgotten who you are. In your struggle and sin, the primary problem is that you've forgotten who you are. There are other issues involved. But the primary problem is you've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten what God said about you. He said, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not be weary when reproved by him or corrected by him. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, I think one of the issues we have with hardships and sufferings is that we confuse author and redeemer. And we, 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 we want to start with this blanket understanding God's in charge of everything, right? We, we believe that. He's in charge of the universe. So when something happens... We automatically blame who? Him. Right? Let me just break down um, suffering into some categories for you. We use this in our counseling training here at the church because so many different things could be going on when something is considered to be hard or suffering. So here's some examples. One is fallen world suffering. Because of our first dad and mom, Adam and Eve, we operate in a world that is fallen. It's tainted. The shadow of sin and death has been cast across our lives, each one of us. If you haven't faced a terminal illness, you know somebody who has. Right? Hurricanes. Right now, tropical storm bearing down on Florida. Those kinds of things. You can't pin those things to a person. Right? I know that politics tries to, but right? I mean, what man can cause a hurricane? Right? It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. We live in a fallen world. It's broken. It's tainted with sin and death. We inherited that from Adam, and that's the world we live in right now. Now, awesome thing is we're starting a Revelation series next week, and we're going to see how it all gets fixed. But right now, it's not fixed. It's broken, fallen world. Sometimes the hardships and suffering you face are simply the product of that. Tornado hits your house, natural disaster, um, a terminal illness wells up from inside of you. Um, those kinds of things happen, and, and oftentimes you can't pinpoint them to your fault or a sin or a person. Another category is voluntary suffering. You did the crime, you do the time. It's still suffering, right? I mean, like whether it's going to prison or you know, whatever it is, living out, you know, sleeping in the bed that you've made or reaping the harvest of what you've sown, all those ideas, right, that we, we face the consequences of our actions, whether it's a legal issue or a non-legal non issue, right? At the end of the day, there's voluntary suffering. <laughs> this is my fault. Now, that's the last one we want to own up to. Right? But when we're 
often talking with a friend. We're hearing what they're saying. In the back of our minds, we're thinking, like, I can tell you what happened. You messed up. You had a lot to do with it. Why are you blaming everybody else? So you have fallen world suffering, voluntary suffering, involuntary suffering, a true sense of being a victim. Somebody has abused you, taken advantage of you, mistreated you. I don't want to belittle this one. This is a significant um, experience of hardship and suffering. You did absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Somebody else, and you can pinpoint it, right? Somebody else sinned against you. Somebody else perpetrated you. They abused you. They took advantage of you. So there's a sense of involuntary suffering. Somebody else did it. Now we get into how God gets involved. Allowed divine suffering. Who's who's the most famous person to experience allowed divine suffering in the Bible? Job. Who authored it? Satan authored it, but he received permission. He said, God, I'm asking for permission to tempt your servant Job. I promise you he'll walk away from you. And God allowed it. So ultimately God allowed it as the authority, allowed divine suffering. How about this? Caused divine suffering. What do we mean by that? Noah and the flood. God authored that. God speaks of a final judgment where he alone is the cause and the, and the author and the agent. So these are just different categories that suffering can fall into, right? So we need to unpack the experience of our life, not pin everything on God. But I think the thing we confuse is the difference between the author and the redeemer. So what the Bible is putting forth is that Jesus is the redeemer of suffering. He's the healer, the rescuer of suffering. How does he do that? We've seen this all throughout the Bible, how God takes impure motives of man, he superintends his motive, and he brings good out of evil over and over and over again. That's what redemption is. God stepping in as the rescuer, where things are broken, things have been placed off track regardless of the cause. God steps in and he redeems it. He takes what's intended for evil and he turns it what? Into your good. Many of you, your lives bear testimony to that. You think back of hard things that you've gone through and you say, I would never want to go through that ever again. But I'm thankful. I'm thankful what happened in my life because of it. I don't like what happened. I would never want to do it again. But I'm thankful for the way that matured me or has grown me or the way that's sharpened my perspective. I'm thankful now for the way I see the world because what are you saying? Like there's redemption. What was intended for evil, God has redeemed for good. But not only that, superintending growth from our everyday pain. Through everything that is hard, every obstacle along the path, God is using that for your good, and he's superintending growth and maturity. You know, part of the process of a tree growing into full, um, full bloom and full maturity is the resistance it faces in the ground. That's why trees will spring up out of rocks and concrete and Right, This amazing pressure and ability to press in and down and hit obstacles and keep growing. And that affects greatly the maturity of the tree. Trees that grow in soft, sandy, loam soil, they're not very strong trees. They're very limber and they break. Pecan trees is an example. When we respond to suffering with anger or blame towards God, we're confusing the author and the redeemer. Our enemy comes against us with intent to still kill and destroy. Jesus redeems what the enemy intends for evil against us and uses it for our good every time. And this is where, this is where the author of Hebrews is going. First of all, he says, let's just remember the, the, the equation here. Your God's son or daughter 
God's the Father. So when you experience discipline, you need to think of it in those terms. There's nothing about my discipline for my boys that is outside the boundaries of my love for them. We would argue, parents, what? I discipline because I love them. If I didn't love them, I would just let things go and not discipline them. And so this is the same thing that's being described to us. We face hardships and suffering, whether this person caused it or is, is maybe Satan's stirring things up against us. Like, we wouldn't see it that way. We'd say, you know what? It doesn't matter. Whatever hardships come my way, God's with me, and he's going to redeem it for my good. Since Jesus is better than anything else in heaven and on earth, I must see my momentary suffering as something that God will redeem for my good. I must see it that way. I must see it that way. And when you're 20 years old and you read momentary, that sounds like an understatement, doesn't it? <sighs> Come walk in my shoes, right? Momentary. That's well, not momentary. But when you get to the other end of life and you look back and you realize how momentary things really were. Yeah, that was a hard six months or a hard six years. But in the grand scheme of eternity, it was but a hiccup. It was but a moment. And this is what the author of Hebrews is calling us. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to things eternal. Don't get fixated on the moment of, of this situation, the moment of this day. I must see my momentary suffering as something God will redeem for my good. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to, be subject to the father of spirits and live? Verse 10, talking about our earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, being God, disciplines us for our what? What's the word? For our good that we may share his holiness. Ultimately, when I experience hardships and I experience sufferings, what I need to think in my mind is I need to, I need to hear the voice of God saying what? These people over here, this situation over here is trying to steal your joy, it's trying to kill you, it's coming against you. It's trying to take your life and to stamp out your faith, but the reason is is because of me, is what God's saying. It's what he's saying to these folks in, in Hebrews. Ultimately, they're coming against you because of me. And so he says to us, what they mean for evil against you, I am redeeming in love for your good as your father. Whether it's somebody making fun of me or I'm facing the sword. Right? Whether I'm going through some type of calamity or experience of, of just you know, circumstantial fallen world suffering or somebody violates me or somebody I love. Both suffering, both hurt, both are painful. But how do I make it through those things? I say, you know what? My Father is able to redeem this. My God doesn't waste pain. He doesn't have to be the author that I blame, but he can be the one I reach out to to say, can you fix this? Can you get me through it? And ultimately what God is saying to us in the midst of discipline and hardships is what? You're mine. Every time you hit an obstacle in life, that needs to remind you of something. You're mine. You're mine. Verse 11. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So not only is this an endurance race we're on, we're being trained while we're on the course. There are obstacles coming your way that you have not experienced or been trained for. But whatever you're going through right now is preparing you for it, training you for it. This isn't like a race that you get to go practice 100 times at home and then go sign up and start. God's saying, no, 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 no. This is on-the-job training. Fix your eyes on Jesus. When you hit obstacles, be reminded of the voice of your Father saying, I love you. You're mine. We're going to get through this. Fix your eyes on Jesus in the peripheral. Listen to the voices of those who have gone before you cheering you on, and you will make it. Endure. Hold fast. Now, just because this is true doesn't make suffering not painful, does it? Suffering's painful, regardless of whether or not this is true. This truth doesn't make suffering less painful. This truth makes suffering endurable, knowing that God doesn't waste our pain and that in our suffering, God is growing us towards maturity. If you're taking notes, since Jesus is better than anything else in heaven and on earth, my pain isn't wasted and my struggles lead me. My pain isn't wasted. My struggles lead me towards what? Spiritual maturity. Further down the, the course. My pain isn't wasted, and my struggles lead me towards spiritual maturity. So let's, let's wrap up Hebrews this way. So all throughout the series, we've, we've found that the, the resounding theme and message of Hebrews is incredibly relevant to our everyday lives. Incredibly relevant. In the same way that the author points these early Christians uh, to put their faith into practice and to endure suffering since Jesus is better than anything else, in heaven on earth, God is challenging us to do the same by fixing our eyes on Jesus, learning to see that our hardships are discipline, a loving discipline from our heavenly Father. We are empowered to live out our faith, endure hardships, stay the course, and finish the race. I encourage you to memorize Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Not only is it the theme, I think, of the whole book, I think it should be the theme of our lives. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us then lay aside every weight and every sin that so easily entangles us. And let's look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I want to I end by praying um, for you this morning. And um, across the room, no matter if you, this is your first time in church or you've been in church a thousand times, your life in some way just got described today. And, and I'm not really sure where you're at on that journey, whether you've just recently hit an obstacle or you just recently passed an obstacle, if you're just right in the trenches of something really hard or difficult. So here, here's what I want to do. I want to pray for you today. Um, first of all, if you're here today and you're a Christian, that this beautiful command to consider or to meditate on, um, that you do that today before we leave here. Just take some time to reflect. Weigh out who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Consider him. But... For those in the room who maybe you're not a Christian and this whole church thing is kind of new to you and, and, and you had one impression of what the church was from the outside looking in, but now you're here today and you're hearing um, who God is and what he's done for you. And so maybe now you're realizing, oh, like religion isn't just some thing. Like it's a personal thing. Like God knows who I am. And maybe that caught you off guard today. 
God knows who you are. He sees the things you're going through in life, and he wants to be involved. Maybe that's new news to you, and I just want to let you know that that's not only new news, it's good news. The God of the universe is here today, and he wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to be the primary voice cheering you on through life, calling you forward, showing you how to find purpose in pain, showing you how to grow through your experiences. He alone wants to do that, and it's, and it's the promise of faith, that by faith you can have all this. By faith you come to God and say, here's the mess I've made. Here's the weight, here's the sin that you've asked me to lay down, and I'm laying it down in faith, and I'm fixing my eyes on you. That invitation's open today, and I'm gonna pray for you today. If you're not a Christian, that you will take that step, that you'll trust in Jesus for the first time. Say, you know what, I'm here, I'm, I'm following you. I'm fixing my eyes on you. Take it, I'm ready, I'm ready to follow you. Um, if you make that decision today, um, I'm gonna ask you to do something courageous. Would you, would you let us know? Um, either fill out a connect card, or maybe talk to one of our prayer partners who'll be at the back, um, or somebody on staff, come let us know. Just let us know, hey, I don't know what this whole mean thing means, but I became a Christian today, and I'm ready to follow Jesus. I'm going to pray for us now and ask the worship team to, to come back up.